0: Hi, welcome to We Excel Weekly. This is our We Excel podcast that encompasses our mission to empower and unite through passion, purpose, and story. Thank you for joining us. And uh, today we have a friend and incredibly creative talent, my friend Lisa Lee Herrick. She is the co founder and creative director of Lit Hop, an all-day literary festival. She is also she has also been a community advisor, planner, and business development executive for programs such as PBS, Grapple Entertainment, and Better Blackstone Organization. And I know Lisa, you've also got some cool things coming up right now and uh, that we're going to be talking about. So I'm really excited. Welcome Lisa.
1: Such a pleasure to be here, Arabella. It's so nice to meet you on this program. <laughs>
0: Wonderful. So, Lisa, we're going to start with something easy and fun. What is your favorite piece of writing and how does it speak to you?
1: You know, I think that as a lifelong reader who initially started reading out of survival, essentially learning English and helping my parents translate the world, to becoming a writer and going beyond just survival reading but into pleasure reading. There are really too many books and too many pieces of writing to, to just name one. Um, but I would say that the book that I return to year after year after year in English, as well as in French is Marguerite, de, uh, Marguerite Dura's book, The Lover, or as it's known in French, Le Mans. And it's a novel. However, there's definitely bits and pieces of it that are autobiographical, that are inspired by her life more than anything, it's such, a, it's such a brave exploration of the subjectivity of a person who is normally not recognized. Uh, that is a child, uh, someone who doesn't belong in the country she lives in and also the erotic relationship that she has, it's also problematic with an older gentleman. The reason why I love the, the writing is not so much that I identify with it at all, but rather it's that it's just so poetic. The words that she chooses in both the English translation as well as the original French are just so emotionally pregnant. They're they're it's it's incredible to me that that given the limited number of words that we have available that writers can create and evoke a feeling that's never been able to be accomplished before just by rearranging them in different ways. And I feel that she, she is just such a master of that, taking spare writing and putting so much world building into it. So yeah, Marguerite Dura, I think is just like the grand master of that.
0: That's awesome. You know, I haven't actually read that yet. And I didn't also know that, you speak French.
1: Yes, that is also an act of survival that's been passed down from my father to me. Uh, my, my parents are both uh, originally from Laos, but their parents before migrated there from China and Vietnam. And as you know, uh, in the 1800s up until 1954, uh, French Indochina was essentially a, p- a protectorate of France and under the Vichy government. So what that means was that we had, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different types of people who are now in their own sovereign countries, such as Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, uh, Thailand. But back then we were all just basically French. And uh, if you're not familiar with the French concept of identity, being French is not an ethnic identity. It's a political identity. So for example, if you, were a, if you were a member of French Samoa, or if you were from Senegal in Africa, or if you lived in France, you would be French. It didn't matter if you were black, Asian, brown, or European, you were French. And so for my father, who was one of the few people who attended university in Laos from his village, One of the requirements, of course, is a very, very strict and formal French education. So when he came here to America as a refugee in the late 1970s, after the end of the war, uh, he didn't speak a single word of English, but he could speak French fluently. (laughs) So our household, we spoke Hmong, we spoke Thai, we spoke Lao, yet and French. And it just stayed with me, even though we had to face the fact that there are even fewer French people in America, let alone those who do speak it. And I'm so glad to have rediscovered it. It, It's it's, it's something that many people who are multilingual express on a regular basis, that uh, the words that you choose really open up different doors in your psyche. For me, speaking English is very proper and it's business oriented. It's direct, it's very, very, uh, when I speak Hmong, it's more poetic because uh, Hmong is very uh, general and conceptual. We don't have specificity, and so it's all about reading between the lines and and reading the nuance and reading the context of, of a situation. Whereas French is so poetic, and it's 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 so I think the best way to put it is like French French is like like an ocean wave that just keeps on returning to the shore and as it as it washes upon the shore of your of your understanding it reveals new things to you and so when i write and and speak and write and read in french i feel like i can be more emotionally open and more emotionally vulnerable and it sounds to me like my childhood whereas when i read and write in english it's it's very specific it feels little bit more perfect and a little bit more precise but there's a little bit of uh there's there's a little bit of a spiritual loss in it so far i haven't found too many people who speak french where i live now but i i find a lot of comfort in the books that i read because then i can hear my own voice and i hear my father's voice reading it to me in french and it it just brings me back to my childhood
0: lisa you you are so moving and the your art, your writing, well I can only read English unfortunately, so I read English. but you know I know what you're trying I know what you're saying about English being precise, but I have nothing to compare it to because I am I've literally abandoned Tagalog when I came to this country because I wanted to be American and, and that's fine. but I, when I read your essays, uh, about your upbringing and your family i learn so much and not just about you but i learn so much about history and other people and other cultures that i i have i i never even Knew existed to be honest, Lisa, and I wanted to tell you that directly because I, I I haven't I've never articulated that to you, but I've always been a fan of your work and your art. So it's really cool to just uh, learn even more about the woman behind the art that I've so uh, so love. And so, which brings me to the, my 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 next question to you. Um, you know, it's interesting that when I read your bio, uh, it was a lot about you as a businesswoman. And we talk about, you know, you're talking about American, uh, you know, English, English, Amer- American English as as a sort of this sort of businessy, very precise uh, uh, language. But how do you how have you uh, how have you. Um, I don't know if it's reconciled or maybe brought together the side of the business side of you with the artistic side of you. How did how was that journey journey like for you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I think that for many writers and artists and and creative producers, there's there's never really a need to reconcile the different facets of your personality or different skill sets. If, if anything, your journey is. It only has one aim which is to unite them all together to achieve the ultimate vision of what it is that you want to do with your life and I know that sounds very trite but then like, what do you want to do and like when you grow up and I think that for most for most artists and writers and creators who are truly children at heart who do the things they do purely because they love what they do we don't want to grow up we want to play we want to play with ideas we want to build worlds that are adjacent to the realities that we live. Uh, There may be wishful thinking, but there's also worst case scenario thinking. And a lot of it is really about examining the experience that, that each of us has under a microscope and really accepting wholesale the idea that you don't really know anything for sure. So therefore, every reality is possible. A lot of nonfiction borrows a lot from fiction writing to make the stories more, you know, relatable. But a lot of fiction is inspired by life. Art is, in a very strange way, it's it's like a time machine. There are so many works of art that we still read today, thousands of years later, that we still borrow from and that we still recognize ourselves in them. And I believe that's because art is essentially how we create empathy through time. Essentially, empathy just means that not only do you see someone, but you also understand where they're coming from. And the only way you can do that is if you borrow their eyes, if you borrow their skin, which doesn't mean that you take over it, that your narrative, you know, that that just because you read a whole bunch of books by people of color that suddenly you're an expert on the life and and dreams and goals and heartaches of, of people of color, but rather it means that you're willing to say, you know, I really don't know what that's like. So I'm going to see what it's like through the eyes of this person. And if I really want to know more then I'm going to find other people who have also provided their own artistic testimony. And the more you absorb, the more voices you see, the more elements of fiction, nonfiction, poetry, art, film, music that you that you really take into yourself, how can we tell a really good story that frames a need in a new and different way, not creating p- problems and then trying to solve them, but rather saying, you know, there's a common, there's a co- there's a common dilemma here. So let's put our heads together and let's let's find some partners and collaborate and try to figure out how we can make this work for everyone.
0: That's incredible, Lisa. And I, I, I think I have a. So. <laughs> I'm I I actually really love your intentionality, and I always ask you for advice on, on certain things when it comes to what is it you've you've seen you've seen how we excel has has progressed in in its years. So uh, I, I I could use a little bit of that structuredness that you you have in your life. But which leads me to what I really want to know is you have a structure, you have your own personal mission, which I'd like for you to go over. But how did you build that compass or find that compass within yourself? What What did it take to really understand that this is the compass that you're going to use to find your true north?
1: You know, as as much as most Americans love the Horatio Alger, like bootstrapper, the, 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 the individual who, despite the odds, did it all by themselves. They figured it out. They, they went to the wild, wild west and they, they, they created the map. That's a huge lie. I could not have gotten to where I am. This is not the end of the journey. This is just a stop along the way, but I couldn't have gotten here but at the same time, I also had people who embraced me, which, which is the perfect balance. So much memoir writing is not so much biographical, that it's chronological, that it starts from birth and it ends at the death of the author, because obviously that wouldn't be very good. But a lot of memoir writing is about atomizing a single moment that, that has really stayed with you for, for basically your entire life, something that haunts you. And then really, like, just peeling it away piece by piece. And I think the mark of a really excellent creator is realizing that the experience may be yours, but that it's key components, you know, at the time you may have not acknowledged them, but now is the time for your art to acknowledge them and to really admit like, I don't understand this person. I don't understand what happened. I don't understand the place I was living. I don't understand the the historical time period I was living through, but now that I'm older, I can look back and reflect and do research and really try to understand it so that I know like this is an anchor in my life. The, my, my main mission right now as a writer is just to basically say I'm here. And as much as I would like to think that uh, I am trying to speak for members of my family who, have passed away for for many, many years already. The fact of the matter is, I'm just the product of all of their struggles. I remember when I was helping making a a documentary film, uh, we spoke to a lot of the survivors of the genocide uh, of the Laotian Civil War uh, in Laos, which was between the early 1960s up until like 1975. And those survivors, many of them were illiterate. Uh, Like I mentioned, my father was one of the very few people from his village who was accepted into a formal French education. And everyone else was essentially uh, oral, oral storytelling. So we needed the elders, we needed adults in the room, not because we needed supervision, but because they were the memory keepers. And memory keepers are also the ones who are responsible for transferring cultural knowledge to the new generation. So when that entire generation of uh, cultural bearers, memory keepers disappeared, it was almost like starting at year zero again. So, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of years of, of family history, of, of migration, of, of context, which just gone overnight. And in a strange way, I didn't set out to become a gatekeeper or, or not a gatekeeper, but I, I didn't set out to become a, a, a cultural bearer, but in a strange way, I found myself becoming that. And it's, it's an act of self-generation because the, the person that I'm writing about who's supposed to be me is also not me because I'm trying to remember her. And so in the act of remembering, there's definitely going to be elements where where time is telescoped upon itself. There's going to be composites. There's going to be some some human error just because I'm trying to recall something as best as I can, but I can't recreate reality in 360 degrees. It's just far too complex. The the, the greatest benefit though of being a writer, an artist, and you know the slashy, as he say in Zoolander, is that I've had so many people in my whole life basically say to the gist of why bother? Or, or why should you bother? Specifically meaning a, a woman of color whose parents are immigrant, refugee, someone who is essentially old in the world, but, but essentially also new in the world because this is our first time that anyone else has seen us before <laughs> and uh, you know I, I think that to 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 lesser degree some people would probably agree and say yeah you're right you know no one's going to accept me no one wants to hear my story nobody wants nobody cares about someone they've never met and yeah you're right I should just become a doctor <laughs> I should just become a lawyer and uh you know do a startup and make 50 million dollars you know et cetera, et cetera. but for me even though I tried to be becoming practical, the, the only thing that kept me up at night was the writing. I did it for free. I did it, you know, because it was a compulsion. I just had to. I felt like it gave me a sense of joy. And it gave me a sense of joy that I never got, no matter how many product launches I did, no matter, no matter how many successful fundraising campaigns I did, no matter no matter what, my greatest joy was, you know, waking up in the middle of the night and, and furiously writing something down that just came to me or, or getting up three hours earlier than my 5 a.m. commute <laughs> to to, uh, to Silicon Valley and, and just writing and writing and, and taking that writing on the train, the whole Caltrain ride down and and then doing work. And, and like just during, during work hours, just being so excited, like, to get back to writing and I, I think that that itself is the compass point it's what is that that urgent desire that just won't let you you know relax like you have to do it for some people it's making a film for some people it's writing music for for me it's writing creative nonfiction essays it's about making art uh, the artwork that i now make for the rumpus my my mission there is to illustrate and complement the work created by other people of color who don't want to see like abstract, non-representational art to go with their their writing, or they don't wanna see just Getty images and stock photos being used. They want want to feel like someone out there has read their work, sees what they want, Their, their work has inserted a seed of imagination, and that, you know, this is what has come forth. Like the fruit of the work is that now it's been interpreted by someone else. And and that is such a huge compliment. I think that, you know, the conversation about whether art is good or bad or highbrow or lowbrow is really moot. Art is interactive. It need, needs an audience. And I think that when artists lose their compass, it's only when their art has not interacted with anyone. Uh, Whether that's that's out of fear, uh, for example, if an artist is afraid to share or show their work because they're afraid of being rejected or misunderstood or humiliated or laughed at or, or denied access to an audience or whether it's just not ready yet. But sometimes works of art need a long time to evolve into their final form it takes a lot of courage to, to create something new that's never existed before. And to say, what do you think about this? <laughs> do you like it? Not so much, do you like me as, as a creator, but do you like what I've made? Because it's, it's, it's so much of a, a, a literal piece of your hopes and dreams and your fears that you're showing other people. It's, it's a moment of vulnerability. So, I commend all artists and creators and, and anyone who creates anything original out in the world, including inventors, who basically say, you know, yeah, it's a really scary thing to share like your most private ideas and thoughts, but let's go ahead and just do it anyway and see what sticks. It's really the culmination of just hard work, I wanna say. I, I, think, I think a lot of times uh, when I was a journalist, I would always get questions about, you know, how do you find the time to to write, to do things. When I was working in television, I would get the same question. How do you find the time? And now as a writer and an artist, I get the same question. How do you find the time? And the answer has always been the same. The answer is if you really want to do it, if you really love it, you make the time. You will carve out the time. It doesn't have to be three hours. It doesn't have to be a weekend. It could be 10 minutes each morning before you get on the road. It could be you know an hour or two at night while everyone's asleep and then you just you just do it. As I said before, you know, there are certain things that help you keep the faith. And and how do you know what it is that you want to be faithful to? Well, ask yourself what is the most urgent need that compels you to do something. If if you're compelled to climb a mountain, it keeps you up at night you wake up in the middle of the night and you grab your phone and you and you're like looking for, you know, tips on how how to climb higher, climb faster, then that's that's your faith. Your faith is that. For me, it's writing and art. I can't imagine my life without it. And I and again, I I really thank all the people in my life who not only have helped me, but I also think the people who never believed in me because I don't hold any grudges against them because I feel that if they hadn't entered my life, I wouldn't know how strong I am. You, you can be outstanding just by being your best self. You don't need to impress anyone else. If, if, if someone's impressed, that's a great added bonus, but that's not the point. The point is you should be your best self and impress yourself first. And in terms of like gender roles and, and gender expectations, My grandmother was never so much you know as a woman you should be like this or you should be like that but rather she was more of the line of you know as a woman you're also here and you should speak up you should say something you if if something's not right you have to be unafraid to get to the point and just say it because there are many times other people are thinking it and they're too afraid to say it and when no one says anything you're basically allowing Uh, something to happen. You're being complicit. You're, you're being a bystander in your, in your own life. And that's not acceptable. At the end of the day, if it turns out that you've reassessed your, the, the quality and the quantity of your years, and you've found yourself living outside of it, I think that's the biggest regret of all. It's not so much, you know, I didn't do this and I didn't accomplish this, but rather it's that you never participated in your life. And now it's too late to, to really, you know, go back in time and do things over and, and put your foot down and say, I'm not okay with this. I'm not okay with the way you're treating me. I'm not okay with the way you perceive me because that's inaccurate. You have to, you have to be part of your life in in, in whatever form or, or, or role that, that you know, whatever shape that is. For me, it's creating, you know, literature and, and artwork, but it's also helping other artists find their voice. I help a lot of filmmakers and I help a lot of other writers try to figure out how they wanna tell their stories using the things I've learned, using my toolkits, because I wanna see other people succeed. I don't want them to have to take the wrong detour and, and go someplace for the wrong reasons. You know, I sometimes I get writers who ask me, you know, what's the secret to winning this award? What's what's the secret to getting published here? And I always say, there's no secret. The, se- the, the only secret in any industry is you got to do the work it's it's hard work and you got to you got to be willing to to wade through the muck to fail to iterate to to try new new ways of doing things.
0: Lisa thank you so much for everything that you've shared and continue to share through your art and your writing and i I'm I'm so grateful to have your ear on a lot of the ideas that, that I've created myself. A book that I wanted to write, haven't started writing yet, that you're so kind to be even willing to listen to me. And so when you say you also help other artists, I want to to tell people that she really does help other artists. She's this incredible artist herself, but, I, but an artist also who... Cares about other artists, and and I think that's inc- incredible that you continue to do that work with all of us, and also share yours, your magic. So thank you, Lisa, and we definitely will be following your journey. And when you're ready to tell everyone about your reading for the Pan America uh, uh, Fellowship, we'll be there. We would love to 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 help you share that inf- that as well as the Lit Hop, all of the things you're doing. So thank you so much, Lisa.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Arabella, and I really look forward to all of the works coming from we Excel, And, you know, there's such good content and, and, and such amplification of much needed uh, storytelling coming from our marginalized communities that are being produced by all of your work. And I do hope that the community at large, not just the business community and funders, but also for those who are, you know, makers and creators to understand that This is something that that many people of color, especially women of color, do consistently. We create and represent ourselves. And then we try to uplift our community members, as well as our neighbors and friends and whoever we feel is down the same hole with us. So, you know, a lot of the times I feel like it's hard to talk about the work that you're most passionate about just because it's, it's difficult to convey sometimes a sense of passion for the work that you do, but I feel that with WeExcel, if, if a funder or a partner is working with WeExcel, then you've already been vetted as legit. I think WeExcel is one of the many efforts, uh, grassroots efforts and minority women-owned efforts that is trying to do this, not just for one community, but for all marginalized communities, including the LGBTIQ spectrum. It's it's the, the the work always falls in the backs of those who experience it. But I think that if if there are companies and funders and, and potential partners out there that who can support the work and who want to really understand those networks, then we excel is definitely something to.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Lisa. That's a great testimonial. Do you see what I'm saying? She also helps other people. So in. Uh, Thank you so much, Lisa, for everything and your continued support of, of the work that we do here. And if you're listening, please consider supporting us by just subscribing, if that's all you can do. We'll, we'll take your sub- subscribing to this podcast. We're talking to incredible creators like Lisa uh, every week. And we're, we're sharing their stories because we really do believe that the stories unite us and together we excel. And please uh, check out our website, wexl.org, and follow us on social at wexl.org. Thank you. I'm Arabella. I'm the founder of We Excel. And have a great day.